Hi, and welcome back to the One Link Podcast. Uh, we're so excited to be back with you guys again today. We're continuing our discussion about what Muslims believe. I'm here with Brad and here with Zach. Now, we just finished off our last episode. We were talking about prayer and how what Muslims believe about that. And now we're going to jump right into Ramadan. Now, what about fasting during Ramadan? Uh, well, uh, two questions. What is Ramadan? And then I hear this sound bite sometimes that like, yeah, they fast, but then they feast all night, more food sold during Ramadan than any other time. Like, tell me about that, either one of you. Oh, um, it, I mean, it was it would kind of depend on the time of year, too. When I first moved to, because of the lunar calendar, it shifts throughout the year. So when I first went overseas, this is probably uh, in 01, 02, the first one I experienced, it was uh, in the middle of winter. So it's only sun, oh. sunrise to sundown that you're fasting. So it was certainly um, less time there. You had to do it then in the middle of summer, especially where we lived. The, the daylight was really long in summer. Um, they would, you know, it was fasting. We would probably just think about fasting as not eating food. But for them, it was, you know, food, water even chewing gum, brushing your teeth, putting anything in your mouth, chewing on a pen. I mean, you, you know, you name it, nothing's going into your mouth. Now there was, you know, there was sort of the breaking of the fast that would happen uh, in the evening iftar. And it was, uh, you know, kind of a moment that, yeah, then they would probably eat a lot, but you know, whether that's because they can then eat at night, they would also get up real early in the morning before sunrise and get a meal in. Now, whether that means it's, you know, not as hard or whatever. I, I, I couldn't speak to you. I, I've not observed it, but uh, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your perspective, Zach. Yeah. Well, even they would fast from uh, relations with their spouses during that time, or at least it was uh, indicated that that would be. And of course, the point of the fasting is not simply to focus on God, even though that was clearly there, but also to remember the poor and those were some very important principles behind the fast. Um, yes, in a sense, they fasted during uh, sun up to sundown, but they also allowed for medical exemptions if that was needed, and understood that um, you know this was a personal sort of commitment that you made, although it was sort of expected. Uh, and yes, when they broke the fast, they did so with joy, just like anyone would <laughs> when you've been fasting all day to get with friends. So, so it was also, even though the fasting time was uh, very somber in many ways and, and people were grumpy often where I lived, but at the same time, when the iftar breaking of the fast time came, that's when they would gather with friends and they would enjoy. And that was also a wonderful time that we could fellowship with them and uh, in their homes, and they were very generous to share some of those things. Uh, but you're right, they they fasted, but then they feasted uh, in the evening uh, to make up for it in a sense. And of course, again, as Brad said, sometimes we would think, well, the intention is is the is the most important point behind any action. And for them, of course. Um, you know, those things were intended to um, make them reflect and to humble themselves and to remember the poor. And that went on for, uh, you know, almost a month, entirely a month. So that's a long period to be going through that uh, period. Uh, in many cases, I was rebuked by their commitment to, to hold to the fast for such a long time. 
Yeah, it was kind of a unique moment, uh, period to do ministry as well. well. One, in that you had to be very careful not to be so very cavalier, because if we weren't uh, observing that, to be sort of very cavalier, walking down the street, ch- chugging a bottle of water. And also uh, during the day, you know, I, I thought, oh, all day long, this is going to be a great time to do ministry. But as Zach alluded to, during the day, people were pretty tired. It, it just wasn't, weren't really engaged. Um, so it was really kind of those evening breaking the fast moments that you could connect with people uh, a lot more easily. I've heard a lot of people talk about or seen things like pray, you know, this is Ramadan, pray for the Muslims right now. Um, did you guys find it to be, I mean, we should always pray that God would reach Muslims. Um, but did you guys find that to be more effective or um, did you guys solicit specific prayers from your supporters, types of prayers? Yeah, I, I thought that was a very good time to uh, focus prayer. And my thought was this, when they are fasting and praying more than the average uh, Muslim, they are also open to the spiritual bondage of the enemy more so because of their commitment to that. And so therefore, if anything, um, prayer was absolutely needed during that time. And I also periodically would uh, take, maybe fast a meal. I wouldn't fast all day as they would typically, but I would try to make a commitment to perhaps fast a meal uh, every day during Ramadan, just sort of remind myself of the greater need for prayer um, th- you know, throughout the year, but especially at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a sense that things that happened in that period had greater significance. Both, uh, you know, if you do something good, it kind of counts even more so if it's a good, good thing done in Ramadan. Certainly, I would, uh, I would imagine a, a dream or a vision in that time would would take mm. on extra significance. Mm-hmm. Particularly, there's this uh, night of power, as it's called. Yes, yes. Um, right towards the end, and that that that's seen as a particularly significant time. Um, so, you know, for the Lord to work or re- reveal Himself in some way during that time could could be impactful. Yeah, and many in my area, and I think this was culturally, or at least uh, not just cultural for my area, but on the night of power, God would forgive all sins if you asked and you stayed up all night fasting and reading the Quran and praying. Uh, So there was a sense that transactionally, if you committed to this uh, at this time, there would be extra benefit uh, from, from God for that. Like once a year, you'd be clean anyway. You could wipe your slate clean. Yeah, that's the idea behind it. Um, whatever had been done throughout the year could be forgiven and start over. Okay. Now, what is what is the Orthodox Muslims' view of sin? What is sin to them? Is it similar to us, our view of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, perhaps we should discuss it out on a different podcast, but uh, because I think there are some clear differences, and I have um, have done some looking into that. Uh, obviously, they're, they're more concerned with action than motive. They're more concerned with deed than thought. So in many cases, if you ask them if they had sinned, uh, many of them would say, oh, yes, you know, and if you say it, have you ever broken the five pillars you know have you always prayed five times a day nobody no muslim would say that and and therefore they had sinned because they had not performed their duties to perfection they understood that and they relied upon um, the grace of of allah 
but if you also said you shouldn't lust, to them that typically was not perceived as a sin because it was only in their mind or heart and there was not any action associated with it. Uh, at least that was the idea um, where, I, where I served. Yeah, I would say my understanding is, is less, uh, you know, from the official academic sense and just what people on the street would tell me or believed. And there was a, a sense that more serious things, you know, are, are sin, you know, uh, stealing or certainly murder or something like that, but sort of little, little white lies or something like that, maybe, uh, or, or certainly like, you know, you think of the Sermon on the Mount and, and what Zach just referred to with lust or uh, hating someone in your heart, those things would not uh, translate for them as to, uh, well, you didn't do anything. So why is that sin? Is that almost the same as it was at the Gnostics? Didn't they basically believe that in the New Testament? Yeah. The, yeah. Whatever was material in their minds was evil, and whatever was spiritual was good and divine. And uh, probably wouldn't particularly say those were exactly the same as, as Muslims. But the idea is, is that uh, is action. And that's why action in terms of their faith is very important. Um, the works done are what earn you righteousness uh, okay. before Allah. Okay, and that's kind of what's my follow-up question. Like, what do they do with their sin? Like, we believe that, that Christ pays for it for us. If I'm a Muslim and I know I've sinned, what do I do about that? Yeah, yep. go ahead. Go ahead, Brett. I was going to say there, there's kind of the— the analogy that was seemed very common was this whole idea of sort of scales of, you know, if there's more good on one side than bad. But as Zach said, there are sort of special moments, special things where you can really help yourself. Um, but you definitely want to have more on the weighing on the good side than the bad. So uh, go ahead, Zach. Well, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your perspective. No, most Muslims uh, would recognize that they're probably going to die with a level of sin on their scale. Uh, and of course, God will judge that based on the good they have done, and the scale comes into place. But I also found that many believed in uh, what was some form of purgatory, uh, as we talked about a purging and a payment of sin or a refining of uh, your sins uh, after death, and that would be the answer for many of them. Uh, now, I ne have never read that in, in Orthodox beliefs, and yet uh, many um, who I talked to where I served held to some form of view like that. So I found that interesting. So yeah, we will do our best here on earth. We will try to balance the scale of good in favor of, uh, of bad. But in the end, after we die, there will be a purging, so to speak, uh, by Allah before um, we are allowed into heaven. Okay, so what, yeah, what, do, what do Muslims believe happens after death? Uh, do they believe in a hell? Do they believe in a heaven? Sounds like a pur purgatory. What is heaven? Do they get 70 virgins? <laughs> Um, well, they do believe in a hell, absolutely, and they do believe in a heaven, absolutely. Uh, that is a large part of their motivation in any works-based system. There is rewards, and the rewards for Muslims is a heaven. Now, their picture of heaven is often one that is about their own personal fulfillment of things that they would have liked to have done and didn't get to do. 
uh, and they will have them. So the concepts of men having many women, many virgins in heaven, there's definitely that in the Hadiths. Uh, that is not Quranic, of course, but um, you will not see anything of that nature in the Quran. But that is the idea, and the idea for, for what, what is the reward for women in heaven? It, it, it's not clear. Uh, will they have... Um, well, they have uh, numerous men, virgins, or, or what? It's not, not, it's not listed. But the idea that's interesting about their concept of heaven is that it will be rewards for them, that they will have all of the food and the pleasure that they uh, uh, did not receive on earth, and this will be their reward. So, And, of course, hell is for those who have not believed in Allah, have not submitted to Allah. So anyone in that category um, will suffer, in a similar sense, the fires of hell that maybe Christianity would also uh, hold to. Yeah. Brad, you want to add anything to that? I was just going to say, and again, I'd love to hear uh, Zach's experience, that I found people, you know, as Christians, we may talk about sort of a, a certainty of if you you know, accept Christ, then you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. I found uh, my Muslim friends very reluctant to say that. They had a very, uh, well, you know, Allah alone knows if I, what's going to happen to me and and kind of a very fatalistic view that, um, you know, perhaps that was just, I think in their hearts, maybe they felt like if they were a pretty pious person, they felt like I'm probably good, but <laughs> they would never want to say it that way, the, of this sort of uh, importance in Christianity of assurance of salvation they didn't seem to have that and is that a, is that a trouble spot for them like something that weighs on them or is it kind of like eh, i looked around at you guys and i eh, think on the curve i'm okay that the latter was more my experience i mean there may have been people internally who were battling that but you know you had there was sort of like a scale of like how bad you were and sort of you know, pagans and animists and were kind of on the the very worst end or i get maybe atheists could be down there too um, and then people of the book, like Jews and Christians, were kind of the next step up, like better, but not quite there. And then Muslims. So I think they've uh, sort of on the curve. I think they felt mostly pretty good. But yeah, as we all know, every individual person is different. There may be some out there who that's really weighing on them of, am I going to be accepted by Allah? Yeah, I think that there there's always uncertainty. There's never assurance that what you've done is enough. And at the same time, in many people's case, there was some fear uh, that I experienced, that I talked to them that felt fear about death, of course, not, not knowing what will happen to them and knowing that they were not perfect, right? But again, uh, many times it is easy to find someone who has, in your mind at least, more to fear and <laughs> worse off than you. And that gives you some level of comfort in many cases. And uh, so, yeah, that, that often was a point of contact where I would speak to them about that. Um, how can you be sure that you've done enough, right? Nobody, none, no Muslim uh, have I ever met that felt like they could be sure that they had done enough, even if they were to die right at that moment. They all had more work mm -hmm. to be done. Now, that kind of leads into a, a concept or something, this is the way I understand it, uh, of jihad is the, is the word. And is it, a, I've been told that if you die in the middle of jihad, you know, then that like kind of guarantees you in. Um, what is jihad? Uh, my wife had an old friend whose name was jihad, real nice guy. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, what is that? That's definitely something as Americans, um, that word has a very negative connotation for us. Uh, what is it? Does that, is it true that if I die in the middle of that, I, I'm a, I can bypass all my sin and get in? Yeah, uh, Brad, do you want to comment? No, I, I, I mean, my understanding is fairly basic, you know, holy war and that there's sort of reference in the, the Quran and things like that, that are uh, built on to, to do that. But uh, there is some diversity in the Muslim world or more moderate Muslims would, would not emphasize as much, but yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Zach. Well, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm not uh, an expert, but there is a sense where depends on how depends on how you want to define jihad. Uh, jihad is definitely in the Quran. Um, and it is mentioned in a couple different contexts. One of the contexts is war, because jihad by its meaning is struggle. And uh, the struggle may be a physical one, or it may be a spiritual one. So when jihad is mentioned in the context of battle or war with another tribe, and that is the context by which it is used often in the Quran, it is obviously that um, this war was sanctioned by God, and he is on our side, and we should wage that war for his honor so that people will submit to him, right? So it's not unlike a team praying that God will bless them to win the game, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so in a sense, uh, you could say that jihad, of course, when it extends to war, could be used to mean holy war, uh, which God has intended to wipe out the other civilization, or at least to conquer them. Um, and of course, we see that in the Old Testament as well. Uh, the other explanation for modern Muslims is that jihad means struggle in a metaphorical or spiritual sense. And jihad can mean my struggle against sin. It could be my struggle in this world, whatever that struggle might be, and I should um, fight that struggle. I should fight that battle, even if it is one of a spiritual nature or one of a metaphorical nature. And so there is some reference to some of that as well, because in any language, a word has multiple contexts, right? And so a lot of it depends on the context by which you, you hear that spoken. Yeah. Now I want to jump back uh, something you said way back at the beginning, Zach. Uh, you said that in the Quran, not much of the New Testament was mentioned except for Jesus himself. So my question is, is what do Muslims, what do Muslims believe about Jesus? Um, are there any unique views of him compared to other prophets? Yeah, the, the interesting. Um, and I think this is a very good point that uh, you could speak to Muslims about if they have any knowledge of the Quran, uh, that Jesus is mentioned many times in the Quran. In fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think I read somewhere that he's mentioned more than Muhammad himself, which is interesting. Of course, Muhammad received the revelation, so that might be the explanation. But Jesus is mentioned many times in the Quran, and it's always in the form of high respect as a prophet. And of course, for them, a prophet has very high respect uh, because he is the messenger of God, the one whom God gives a message. So for Muslims, their concept of Jesus was that he was a holy prophet of, of Allah. And so that in itself is very, you know, earns or, or re requires respect. So if they speak of him, they speak of him with great respect. Because to 
in any way curse or speak negatively of any prophet would be disrespectful and not uh, honoring to God. So the interesting thing about Jesus, uh, of course, there are some stories that would line up uh, to some level with the New Testament, but also some stories that are not in the New Testament about what Jesus did. But the interesting thing is how Jesus is described. I think he is described as the Messiah. And, but most Muslims don't really quite understand what that term means. Uh, he's spoken of as the word of Allah, the spirit of Allah. Those types of phrases are used to describe Jesus. Again, what is meant by that, many of them are, have an idea about, but maybe not clear. But there's no question that he was only a man in their minds. He was not in any sense divine, for that would be to break one of their most absolute laws, which is to allow anything um, that would be not God to be a partner, as they would say, to God. So he is not divine in any sense. He's not the son of God. He, was, he has no divinity in him. That would be a blasphemy. So, so that is the phrase. Uh, I think the other thing that is interesting is they believe that Jesus did not um, die on the cross. That's a very strong. Have you heard that as well, Brad? Yeah, the, there's there's a whole story, and I, I wonder if it's maybe had from the Hadith where it comes from, but that he was sort of chased into a, a house of some kind, and the, the guards were out there trying to get him, and God took him up through the chimney, and uh, there was someone else crucified in his place. Maybe it was uh, Judas, if I remember correctly. But. Yeah, I've not heard that first part, uh, but certainly the Quran speaks of him uh, being or someone being crucified in his place or at least that it seemed to be jesus but it wasn't really him but perhaps uh you know it was god allowed it to seem like it was him to deceive mm -hmm. them in some sense and uh some theories have been it was judas or, or someone else um so there's definitely a sense that and i think what's interesting about that idea that jesus never died on the cross is in their minds, that would be the ultimate form of shame that God would never allow one of his prophets to experience. That is one of the huge reasons that they would not want to even admit that he was crucified, because God would not allow uh, one of his honored prophets to suffer such um, humiliating shame as being crucified naked on a cross. Um, and there's no understanding of the redemptive nature of what Jesus did on the cross, uh, that he could pay the price uh, of the sins of someone else. They don't have that idea of substitutionary atonement uh, in the Quran. Uh, they are responsible for their own sins. Only they can work them off. So, yeah. So I'm sure we could we could cover another hour or two of what Muslims believe um, just in this room. But taking taking what we have. I guess I'll give you a, before I bring it to something else. Is there anything, any other big beliefs that we should cover? Well, I think it's probably worth hitting the different divisions oh, of Islam okay. because some of the things, you know, we're talking about Orthodox. Some of that uh, may change depending on whether you're Sunni or Shiite, but uh, okay. maybe, that, maybe that was the direction you were getting ready yeah, to well, go. Yeah, well, that's not the direction I'm going to go, but uh, let's hit that up. I'm going to go to the evangelism direction. I think that's a great one for Zach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, yeah, I, I want to 
reiterate, this is just from my own reading and research as much as not an expert on it. Uh, so basically there's three main divisions, uh, or you might say denominations in Islam. Uh, Sunni, which is the largest number. Uh, Shia, which is a second, you know, a smaller percentage, uh, probably less than, uh, you know, less than a, a third, I would say, are Shia. And then there's Sufi. And Sufi is interesting because Sufi is more of a philosophy of life and, and something that sort of permeates uh, belief. And so, so people can be Sufis in these other um, denominations, you might say, or, or groups. Uh, so Sufi is one of those things that it's a bit interesting. There are some distinctions to it. So yeah, Sunni basically means that there is this, these divisions became uh, apparent after the death of Muhammad, and the key was who would succeed Muhammad. That's where the divisions began. So for Sunnis, their concept was, well, the best person for the job and who is chosen by the group, or at least by prominent members of the group, should take the leadership of Islam after Muhammad died. Uh, and for Shias, their concept was, no, his bloodline should take his um, leadership. So that's where a division uh, started. Of course, now the centers of Sunnism are, uh, you know, Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and the centers of Shia are typically Iran, and that's why you have battles <laughs> between those two groups, and um, proxies of those countries are fighting a war within Islam for prominence. And so uh, there's obviously much more fascinating things could be said about those different groups. A Sufi is very much a philosophy of mysticism. Uh, and so Sufi is, Sufism was often seen as a syncretism of as Islam spread into areas such as Hinduism and, and folk religions, that Sufism became a syncretism of a personal attempt to connect with God in a mystical way. And so Sufis are seen as the philosophers. Sufis are seen as the mystics. They're, they're seen as the ones who are, uh, for example, in Turkey, the whirling dervishes. You know, the, everyone has heard of that. And the idea behind the whirling dervish is as you're spinning and dancing, you're attempting to mystically connect with, with the Almighty God in, in some experiential way. And so that's the key behind Sufism. The interesting thing about Sufism, too, was many of the evangelists in Islam were from the Sufi sect. And so they spread uh, in South Asia. Most of the spread of Islam was due to Sufi um, holy men who basically were went to these areas. Many of them were uh, Hindu areas that had, um, you know, uh, very low class caste Hindus, and they evangelized them and said, become one, uh, you know, one of the uh, union of Islam because there's no sex, there's no castes, I should say, within um, within Islam. And that was a very appealing thing to a low caste Hindu. So Sufis are responsible, at least for South Asia, uh, for a lot of the evangelism and spread. So uh, for you guys as people groups, were they Sunni or Shia? Our people group were Sunnis, though they uh, most of the people I talked to weren't real familiar with the divisions because they are a little more Middle Eastern, you know, Iran, uh, Iraq. A lot of the violence and division in Iraq has to do with the sort of uh, Shia-Sunni divisions. And so because much of the, the periphery and other parts of the world are Sunni, there's no real uh, understanding or, or 
you don't see that division much. So they didn't, I would sometimes be explaining it to them. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe where you were, they understood it a little bit more, Zach. Uh, no, not most. Uh, most, if you ask them, uh, in middle or lower class, uh, Muslims would have really not much idea about these divisions or what it meant. Um, but those who did, yeah, they they largely would be called Sunni. However, they would recognize that Sufi influence was very heavy, especially where we served. But all across South Asia, Sufi influence was highly respected. Um, they saw them as, uh, yeah, much like you might say, um, people who are willing to suffer and to live in remote ascetic places for many, you know, for many days and, and to eat, uh, you know, a little bit like John the Baptist, you might say, uh, honey and locust in order to preach the message. That That's kind of the way the Sunni perspective, they saw those Sunni holy men as. So, but actually most South Asians would call themselves officially Sunnis. And then of course you have the, which we talked about earlier, the folk Islam influence, which is, you know, probably a whole uh, maybe other podcasts, but uh, that was pretty significant where I was. Uh, I think a lot of it was carryover from the pre-Islamic days, some of these superstitions and these healers. And, you know, if you do this and don't, uh, don't do this, you know, the, the moon, don't uh, turn your back to the moon. And there's all these sort of uh, superstitions that are certainly not Orthodox uh, Islam, but they were kind of crept in. Uh, little habits and good luck kind of things and charms and stuff. So so we take all this stuff that, that we've covered. If we take it all, this basic understanding of Islam, if I'm trying to share, if I, if I go overseas and I'm trying to share with, with these new Muslim friends that I'm making, or I'm in America and I have a colleague or a, a classmate that's, that's Muslim, where is a good place to start? How do I use this information with just heard in order to share the good news of Jesus? I would say you need to start by listening because all the things we've said are just all possible views that some people may have. Uh, there's great diversity in understanding, as we've said at a couple points. So some people start with they're trying to deal with some apologetic or some issue or some uh, belief of Islam but that maybe that person isn't even familiar with or isn't significant to them or um, you know you gotta find even though someone is a Muslim that doesn't always mean that their greatest God is Allah they may have other things that you know success uh, finding a spouse that are maybe just as strong of an idol or, or significant in their life so I think you've got to gauge where people are at what are what are their places of uh, need and interest rather than just assuming that they fall into all the things that Zach and I have mentioned. Mm -hmm. Zach, what about you? How do you answer that question? Yeah, I think if if there is an understanding that they are from Muslim background, uh, it does not mean they know much about Islam. And it is important to don't come as a person who's going to educate them about what they do or don't believe. But again, ask questions, find out where they're at with their faith, whether faith is important to them or not. Um, in many ways, you might approach a nominal uh, Christian and say, is faith important to you? You know, is, is this something that matters? And we can go from there. Because there are many, even more so, I would say, in Islam, there are cultural Muslims. Because in their minds, there's not a clear distinction between personal faith and public faith. 
In fact, public faith for them is almost more important than personal and private faith. It's how you are perceived by those around you. It's how you come across. And that's part of the honor-shame culture, which would be a good podcast himself. But the idea that understanding where they're coming from, uh, in many cases, when I spoke to students, many of them loved the West and said, oh, actually, I'm, I'm atheist, or you know, something of that nature. So that would be a good place to start with them, even though in outwardly they would in every way be Muslim uh, by appearance. Uh, so find that out. Mm-hmm. I think, too, dealing with some misconceptions is also a, a pretty easy place to jump in. Because uh, even if they're not very uh, strong in their faith and practice, they probably have pretty universally. I found that our people group had certain misconceptions about Christianity and Christians. And so maybe just asking some questions to, you know, what do you think uh, about the Bible and what do you think about this and that can help you. Uh, some real common ones could be, uh, you know, the view that Christians are very loose morally or we can kind of do whatever we want. That's what a lot of my friends would say. And so there was sort of a, it's, it's easy to be a Christian because you don't have any morality or rules, um, views of the Bible that's been changed and things like that. That was pretty commonly known across the board where I was, um, uh, things like the, the whole concept of, you know, Jesus as God or, uh, the son, the term son of God, that somehow that it means God and Mary had a baby together. So there's a few things like that. Uh, that a lot of people will hear. And so I think that you can begin by helping to deal with a few of those. That's maybe not, that's maybe not conversation or statement number one, but it's, you know, maybe two yeah, or three. Down, get down there. The I always want like a silver bullet. It's like, ah, you just hit them right here and then you get in there. Uh, but it really seems to be universal. Anytime God gives you an opportunity to proceed faster, proceed faster, but it often comes by making a friendship and asking questions and, uh, praying for the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity and, and for the courage to then take that opportunity, take that risk when it comes to to step into that conversation or into that conflict um, or into that controversy, misconception. Uh, Zach, I am so thankful that you were here with us today. Um, I learned a plethora of uh, things about Muslims and uh, we're going to have you on for another one soon and I'm looking forward to forward to having you there as well. It's fun. Thanks for allowing me to come back. Yeah, glad to have you, Zach. I get to see you most days, but uh, it's always fun to chat with you about these kind of things. Yes, it is. Podcast listeners, we appreciate you guys, um, and we will talk to you soon. Yep, talk to you later. Bye.